Happy Mother's Day. If you would turn your Bible, we're going to take a break from John today, and we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5. Thank you, Adam, choir, orchestra, and my favorite singing group, the Superstars, for leading us in worship today, using your gifts so faithfully. We're going to be in verses 22 to 24 of Ephesians chapter 5. It's going to be a two-parter. We're going to do one this week, and then on Father's Day, we're going to address the husbands. So this one is wives, Father's Day, the husbands. So the husbands will be nervous for the next couple of months. So, But let's pray and ask the Lord to, to bless, as he has already blessed this morning, the preaching of the word. Father, we come to you today through your Son and by your Holy Spirit, through the all-sufficient work of the Son of God. And we confess this morning that the triune God is worthy to be praised because you indeed are the Ancient of Days. We face new things, new situations, new crises all the time, but you're not a novice in anything. You're the ancient of days. And Lord, on this Mother's Day, we thank you for the Supreme Court decision this past week. It all of a sudden seems likely Roe versus Way will be overturned, even by maybe the end of the month. We don't know. Of course, this will not make abortion illegal in this country, but will return the issue to the individual states. Still, it will finally address a great injustice and give hope that the tides may be turning and that abortion may someday be as unthinkable as it ought to be. We pray that the opinion circulated in draft form will represent the final ruling. But Lord, as we pray for our country, we pray as well for the matter of abortion in other countries as well. We pray that this will have a positive ripple effect around the globe. And Lord, today we thank you that the gospel of your son that gives us endless hope and peace went the route of a mother's womb. And the fact that the son of God was conceived in the womb of a woman reminds us of the beauty of womanhood. Thank you for our moms today. They are a great gift to us. We realize, Lord, it's not altogether a happy day for everyone. So, Lord, I want to lift up infertile couples today. May your grace and peace be on them. May they trust in your providence, your goodness, your wisdom. We pray for couples who have miscarried for the peace of Christ that surpasses all understanding. We pray for mothers here who have lost children, a tragedy. We pray for peace. We pray for the resurrection hope to permeate their hearts, even in grief. Lord, we pray for women today who have lost husbands, that you would save their husbands and give them grace in the struggle with that. We pray for women who have lost their husbands to death. 
we pray in their isolation and newfound struggle with loneliness for your manifest presence. Lord, we pray for mothers who are estranged from their children. We pray for reconciliation. We pray that the reconciliating work of our Lord Jesus would bring restoration from enmity. Lord, we pray for for wives and moms who perhaps are separated from their husbands. We pray for reconciliation. Lord, we pray for women who've had abortions. We thank you that where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. That we cannot outsend the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And there is forgiveness of sins. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We pray for politicians who are pro-abortion. That you would work godly sorrow in their hearts leading to repentance. We pray, Lord, for voters who are pro-abortion. That godly sorrow would lead to repentance. Lord, we pray today for for people here who have lost their mothers to death. Lord, we grieve on Mother's Day. We pray for husbands who have lost their wives. We pray for grace and peace, for joy, fruit of the Spirit to permeate their hearts by the filling of the Spirit. We pray for husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. We also pray for noble pursuits this morning, like women and their husbands pursuing adoption. We pray for provision there and providence there. We pray for foster moms and foster parents. Give them grace upon grace. We know your glory is in that endeavor. We pray for our right life ministries. And we thank you for what you're doing there. And we pray, Lord, for children to obey their parents in the Lord. For this is right. And now we pray for this service that you would be honored and glorified in our time through the preaching of the word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. William Farley, in his Gospel-Powered Parenting, wonderful book, I recommend it, writes of a couple named Frank and Kim, who were married for 30 years and had four grown children. But their marriage had been a war. Frank was harsh with Kim. He rarely communicated with her and often looked down on her. The truth is, in his mind, she was not good enough for him. Finally, Kim rebelled. She stopped doing things around the house. Uh, She 
withdrew emotionally and, and relationally. They, they tried to compensate with their children. In fact, every morning they arose as a family and had family worship. They were at church every Sunday. Their, their family, in fact, was immersed in the life of the church, a church where the Word of God was faithfully preached. They meticulously protected their children from worldly influences. They tried everything you can think of to raise their children in the Lord, except for the first principle of parenting, their marriage. And now the kids are grown. Three of the four children have turned their back on the Lord in rebellion and the fourth child is a nominal believer who periodically goes to church. Now, the question is, what went wrong? Well, Frank and Kim's marriage preached an unattractive gospel to their children. Now, if you ask most Christians, what is the most important thing that you can do to raise Christ's followers... You're going to get a lot of good answers, especially for those who've been, you know, taught the Bible and have been immersed in the life of a church. You're going to get good answers. But perhaps the one answer you will most rarely get is the example of a godly marriage. And if there is a blueprint for marriage in the Bible, and there is, it's Ephesians 5, 22 to 33 which we're going to look at today and on Father's Day. So we'll look at the first part today, and then we'll look at the second part on Father's Day. And in keeping with the point that our marriages preach the gospel, notice in verse 32 before we get into our passage. In Ephesians 5.32, Paul is saying about this union of flesh between a man and a woman and he says this mystery is profound and so there's a mystery to marriage this mystery is profound and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church so here's Paul's point from before time began God had marriage on his mind he was preparing a bride for his bridegroom son. It would take the humiliation, the cross, and the resurrection of the bridegroom to bring this marriage to pass. And here's Paul's point. Marriage exists fundamentally, not for your personal well-being, though that's a fruit, not for your personal happiness, though that is a fruit. Marriage exists fundamentally to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so here is the first and the most important question we can be asking about our parenting. What are our marriages preaching? What are our marriages preaching? The message that our Marriages preach will either repel or attract 
our children to the gospel of Jesus Christ. God desires that our children watch our marriage and say, I want a marriage like that. And I want a Christ that can produce a marriage like that. That's the central purpose of marriage. The gospel that marriages are to preach is that in the greatest demonstration of love in the history of the world, the bridegroom allowed himself to be tortured on a cross to death in the place of the bride for the benefit of the bride. Absorbing the debt the bride might owe for the bride's good so that peace would reign in the place of enmity, in the place of of alienation. But the bride or the marriage isn't just about the groom. We're certainly going to address that more on Father's Day. It also requires a response from the bride. This is what we're going to look at today in our message that I've titled, The First Principle of Motherhood. And the first thing we look at here in Ephesians 5, is the expectation of biblical submission. Look with me in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, there are only three New Testament texts that directly address husbands and wives. This one, 1 Peter 3 and Colossians 3, I believe verses 18 and 19. And in all three of those passages, you see this call for wives to submit to their husbands. So it must be a very important principle in marriage. Now, just before this command in verse 22... You see in verse 21, a very important aspect of this, Paul writes that we are to submit to one another, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And that's actually the end of a sentence in Greek that began in verse 15. So verses 15 to 21 is one sentence in the original language. And so this is crucial to understanding what Paul's doing in our present passage. So in Ephesians 5 verse 15, he says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. So he's speaking about the wise walk, making the best use of your time. You've only got a short time, and here's how you redeem the time while you're here, because the days are evil. Therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And then in verse 18, he says, to be filled with the Spirit. Verse 19, we're to address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. And then he says, giving thanks for everything, for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another. That is the backdrop to this present command. But it is wrong-headed to think that he is telling every Christian to submit to every Christian. This is not mutual submission, as the egalitarians would have you think. Since he goes on to give asymmetrical commands. What do I mean by that? 
Well, he doesn't tell the parents to submit to the children. He doesn't tell the husbands to submit to the wives. And then he addresses slaves and, and slave masters. He's not condoning slavery. Slavery was an evil institution. Uh, Paul did not have the power to call down a, 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 an evil institution. He's addressing the church here. He would have had his opinions on an evil institution. There's a place and time for that. But he's writing here into the church, how do you honor God given the evil institution that you're in? And he doesn't tell the slave masters to submit to the slaves. He's telling the slaves to submit to the slave masters, not because he, he endorsed that, but because he's more concerned that these slaves honor King Jesus. So this is not a mutual submission. Furthermore, uh, there's no statement in the other passages where he addresses husbands and wives about husbands submitting to their wives. What Paul means here in verse 21 is to submit to everyone in the context that he's about to explain. Furthermore, this language of be subject to or submit to, um, it has the idea of placing yourself in submission to the authority that God has placed over you. For instance, in, in Luke chapter 2, it says Jesus submitted to his parents. Was he inferior to his parents? Of course he wasn't. But it was the authority God had placed on him. In Romans 13, we're to submit to the government. Is the government superior to us? Sometimes they think they are. In that day, it was Nero, a very evil um, administrator. But yet we were called to submit, place ourselves under uh, Nero and the, and the Roman authorities. So all Christians are called to submit in appropriate circumstances and under the ordained authority that God has willed. But being under authority or in authority does not change my status. It doesn't change my worth. So for instance, if I stepped down as pastor at Lakeview and I was no longer a pastor, and let's just say I started attending a Sunday school class at Lakeview, I haven't, I haven't lost any worth or status or dignity, but now I'm under the leadership. I submit to the leadership of Lakeview rather than being the, the one who's in authority. So it doesn't change your worth in any way. It doesn't diminish that. Now, for 19th centuries or so, Christians understood these words without confusion. It's pretty plain. But these verses have become an embarrassment to many today as feminism has gained traction. Now, feminism has roots that goes far uh, more deeper than the 1960s, but that's when we really begin to see the rise of feminism. Also, the rise of liberalism in what Herman Bovic calls consciousness theology. What is consciousness theology? Where it, it's where I begin with what is reasonable to me. Where I begin with what is sensible to me rather than what the Word of God says. And then once I determine what's sensible to me, I edit the Scriptures to fit my sensibilities. That's liberalism. And that has taken root unwittingly in many churches. So how should we respond to the liberation movements of our day? First of all, recognize 
that there is no Christian faith unless Scripture alone, all 66 books of the canon, is the norm and the rule of faith and life for every Christian and for every church. Secondly, remember this, the kind of submission the Apostle Paul is calling us to here is not enslaving. It's actually a sign of true liberation. That's what Paul is addressing. And that's why he says this submission here is as to the Lord. It's not based on the worth of the husband. It's actually a submission to the Lord. In fact, the first time we see the word submit in Ephesians is in Ephesians 1.22, where Paul says Christ has been raised from the grave and he has placed all things underneath his feet. The word submission is used there. All things have been brought in submission to Christ. And one of the evidences that that is a reality is that what was formerly broken, women kind of in rebellion to their husbands and husbands failing to love their wives, is now been fixed in Christ. We are signaling by our Christian marriages in, that Christ has been raised from the grave. And so Paul is giving us a mandate here that is vital to understanding the gospel. That brings us to the second part of this passage, the explanation for biblical submission. In verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. And so the husband's headship here is simply stated as a matter of fact and is made the grounds for submission by the wife. And he defines the, the husband's headship in relation to the headship of Jesus as savior. Now this does not mean that the, the husbands are the wives' savior. Uh, he's using metaphorical language here. The husband doesn't save anyone. There's only one savior. But he's certainly, given what Paul will go on to say, and we'll look at it on Father's Day, an instrument by which your wife is sanctified and conformed to Christ. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, making her holy, cleansing her by the washing with the water through the word. That's why C.S. Lewis was right when he says, headship does not mean husbands doing what they like, but in him whose marriage is most like a crucifixion to self. So at every stage of marriage, the husband is to do a kind of crucifixion audit. That is, he measures up the way he actually treats his wife against the way Jesus treated the church when he went to the cross for her, for her salvation. And so if the husband's headship resembles Christ, the wife's submission resembles the church's submission. And that brings us to verse 24, the extent of biblical submission. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit 
in everything to their husbands. Now, again, this word submit literally means to order under. It's a compound word like butterfly. It it means to order under. And just as the church's new submission to Christ out of a previous rebellion speaks to his victory, a, a wife's new submission to her husband speaks to the same thing. Again, it's not based on the worth of the husband. It's based on the reality that Jesus Christ has brought reconciliation. He has come to fix the broken things. But let's get more detailed as we close out this message. Just a few points here. I want to, first of all, address what submission is not. Because sometimes the culture hears this language of submission. Sometimes Christians hear the language of submission. And it can be used in an abusive way. So I want us to close out today by looking at what submission is not and what submission is. And I'm a little hesitant to get too detailed here because every marriage has its different dynamics. So these are general principles that I think we can find helpful. First of all, let's note what submission does not mean. First of all, submission is not grounded in any superiority of the husband or inferiority of the wife. Again, in Luke chapter 2, it said that Jesus submitted to his parents. He was not inferior to his parents. So there is no superiority, there's no hierarchy of worth and nobility here. In fact, when Scripture calls the wife the helpmeet of the husband in Genesis, that same word is most often used. Of God, who is our helper. So when God helps us, is that, is that demeaning to God? No. And it doesn't puff us up. And so there's no inferiority here. There's no superiority. Because we're all equally the image of God. Let me say this about that. There's no ethnicity that's superior to another ethnicity. There's no gender that's superior to the other gender. There's no demographic that's superior If you're a a millionaire here this morning, you're not superior to someone who who is struggling to make ends meet. We are all equally the image of God. That doesn't mean that we don't have different roles and functions. Second, submission does not mean, and let's be very clear here, that a wife is obligated to follow her husband into sin. It's the Acts 5.29 mandate you obey God rather than man so that would also include abuse submission does not mean that a wife stays in an abusive situation it also means practical things like this if your husband says and I've heard this many times I don't want you to go to church because that's the only day we have together I've seen that, even in my own family. A wife in that case says, I love you, and I want to submit to you, but God will never call me to disobey him in my submission. I'm going to church because I cannot magnify the worth of God unless I'm with the people of God. Now, 
There are exceptions to that, shut-ins, those who are providentially hindered. We recognize that, and we, we are sensitive to those who are providentially hindered from being with the people of God. But that submission never means you, you disobey God to please your husband. That's a deceptive kind of thinking. There are husbands that have distorted this command uh, in order to have their sinister wishes uh, fulfilled. Third, submission does, does not entail silence. Many erroneously think that a wife is unsubmissive, unsubmissive if she constructively criticizes her husband or makes requests of him. So, for instance, for her husband to get off the video games and to act responsibly and to invest his time rather than wasting his time. Or it does not mean that she's not called to teach him. Wives have knowledge and information and, and understanding that their husbands do not have oftentimes. And so uh, it does not mean silence. So what does submission mean? A few suggestions here. Again, this is not a, a, an exhaustive list, and you have to consider every particular marriage. But I wanted to give some specifics in some sense. First of all, submission is a disposition to yield to his leadership. And what I mean by disposition is you're not doing it kicking and screaming. It's a disposition. John Piper, in his wonderful book on marriage, says this. It's a, an attitude that says, I delight for you to take the initiative in our family. I'm glad when you take responsibility and lead with love. I don't flourish when you're passive and I have to make sure the family works. It grieves me when you venture into sinful acts and want to take me with you. You know I can't do that. I flourish most when I can respond joyfully to your lead, but I can't follow you into sin as much as I love to honor your leadership in our marriage. Christ is my king. Second, it's a commitment to support one's husband in a way that he may reach his potential as a man of God. Now again, lest you think that I'm ignoring the husbands, we have Father's Day in just a few weeks. But... For now, what does this look like? Making the home a safe place, free from sinful influence. I remember a few years ago, we started getting out of the blue these magazines like Cosmopolitan. and I, I don't even remember the names of these magazines, but uh, the covers were not safe. I'll just say that. And I'd been to the mailbox a couple of times, and Heather said, no more. You're not going back to the mailbox. And, and so she started going to the mailbox, and I, I haven't been to the mailbox since. Um, but... What she was doing was she was protecting her home or watching movies with your husband that are sensual and, and, and are not good for the soul. Um, the wife has a responsibility there. Uh, how about this? Providing affirmation. Well, he doesn't deserve it. Well, you're doing it as unto the Lord. You're not doing it as unto his merits. Look for ways to encourage him and affirm him. Building loyalty to him with the children and showing confidence in his decisions. The worst thing you can do is criticize him in front of your children or criticize him in front of anybody else for that matter. And I have seen that happen oftentimes in churches. Taking an interest in what he's doing at work. Ask him about his day. 
speaking respectfully about him to others, giving him the opportunity to lead rather than too quickly jumping in to take control, being content with his provision for your family. Now, if he's not making enough to to pay bills, uh, you may want to encourage him uh, to be thinking about another job. That's not passivity, but being content, regularly praying that he'd live out God's intentions for for him. Uh, So those are just some ways that you can encourage your husband so that he might reach his potential as a man of God. Because he has not arrived, remember that. He has not arrived spiritually. But what happens if the husband isn't a Christian? I saw a stat a few years ago, and I, it's, an, it's not an updated stat. This was probably 15 years ago. It's probably similar, but the stat said that 25% of married women come to church alone. Now, I do not think that that is a reality at Lakeview, though some may come alone. Uh, I don't think it's 25% at, at Lakeview, but across the board, 25% of married women come to church alone. What happens if your husband is an unbeliever? Well, Peter tells us what to do in that case. Listen to this from 1 Peter, 1 Peter 3. Wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Now that's, that is countercultural. That's not the way we think, right? Submission here does not mean you agree with him on everything. In fact, in this particular case, the woman, the wife, disagrees with her husband on the most fundamental thing in the world, the Lord. And here, submission does not mean giving up all efforts to change your husband. That's not what Peter's saying either. The point that Peter is giving, here's how you win your husband. You want to win him to Christ? Get out of the way. Get out of the way. Here's what you do. You submit to him and show him what the grace of God can do in a person. That is the primary, that is the most effective way of changing your husband. Third, submission fulfills the purpose of completing another. That's verses 31 to 33 for time. We won't look at that. But the reality is one of the primary instruments of of sanctification is marriage. In fact, when I taught college for 15 years, you you would see these young men and women who would get married And it's almost like it was palatable. It it, it was tangible. They would grow up before your very eyes. All of a sudden, the the guys are taking baths before they come to class. It's quite remarkable. Brushing their teeth. Uh, There was just a responsibility that you see has come on this guy. The Lord uses marriage to change us. And as Christians, to conform us to Christ. You see, we're like ore from a mine. So when you, when you first meet your spouse, you primarily see the gold, don't you? You don't, you don't see the dross. But you get married and, and you begin to see the remnants of the flesh, what we might call the dross. 
It gets exposed in marriage. And, and if husbands and wives can learn to make the distinction between the gold and the dross, um, that's huge. Instead of saying, well, that's the way he is, that's the way she is, and I despise it, and I am embittered by that, remember, that's the part of your spouse that isn't permanent. And the Lord is using you to remove that dross. But you have to do it his way. You don't cut off Malchus's ear with the sword. You do it his way. And his way for the husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. And his way for the wife is to submit to the husband as unto the Lord. And in doing so, the Lord will take care of the dross. That's beyond your pay grade. Fourth, we're coming to the end here. Submission is fundamentally an attitude and act of submission to the risen Christ. It's a lordship issue. In other words, submission signals Jesus is the reigning Lord. My husband's not the reigning Lord. Jesus is the reigning Lord. Vic Lucas, preacher in, in London, According to Paul, there is no possibility of a married woman's surrender to a heavenly Christ which is not made visible and actual by some submission to an earthly husband. And when it is ignored, it does not make life better for women. It actually makes life worse. Many of the stresses and the strains in a family are precisely due to disagreeing with Paul on this or ignoring this. Wives, by your biblical submission, you preach. Now, I recognize some women are called to singleness. That's another sermon for another day. It is a glorious gift. Paul says it's a gift. It's not leprosy. It's a gift. It's a gift to be employed as stewards. Okay? This is to wives. Singles can preach the gospel too, as singles. In fact, Paul says there's something about singleness that allows you to concentrate your efforts for the kingdom of God that married couples don't have. So do not feel you're being marginalized here this morning. But for wives, by your marriage and by your submission, you preach. Marriage exists for something bigger than us. It exists for us to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's why marriage is the first principle of motherhood. When you got married, you got into something bigger than you and something that was invented not by you but by God. And if you determine to run your marriage your way, you're in for a lot of trouble. It will malfunction on you. And because it's God's institution... Because it is God's invention and because God has a purpose for marriage that is beyond your, your personal temporal happiness, we need to ask ourselves, what do we do to obtain a marriage like the Ephesians 5 marriage? And we can learn from Jordan-Hare Stadium. Uh, you go to that stadium and, and what unites all of the fans in there? Uh, you, you sit next to someone who, who you've never met before, but they've got on the same colors, right? 
all of a sudden you're best friends. Because you're centered on a common love, right? Well, that's a weak analogy, but it's an important one. What unites Christians in marriage is having a common, central treasure. The Lord Jesus Christ. And I think one of the ways you do that, and we talked about this with Rich Wingo, pray together. One marriage counselor said when a couple first comes to him, he asks, do you regularly pray together? And he said, I've never received a positive response from a marriage in trouble. And men, submission is already challenging enough for the wives. You can make it a whole lot easier for your wives by loving her into submission. Just as Christ loved us into submission. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time together. Celebrate the gospel of Jesus Christ. To celebrate motherhood. To celebrate our women to celebrate baptism, to celebrate the reality you're a seeking and saving God. I pray for every marriage here that you bring healing and grace and mercy as husbands seek to live out their mandate, as husbands loving their wives, as Christ loved the church, and as wives seek to live out their mandate to submit to their husbands as unto the Lord. pray that for every Christian marriage here. But Lord, we also recognize that not everyone here is a Christian. There may be some marriages here where the husband and the wife aren't saved, or maybe one of them's not saved. We pray that today they would be convicted of their need for a Savior, for a Savior, that that Savior is Jesus Christ, who came as our substitute to die in our place, to be raised from the grave, that we might have forgiveness of sins. May today they repent of their sins and flee to Christ. And Father, I pray... For anyone else here that needs to come to Christ today, humbling themselves under the mighty hand of God, we pray today would be the day of salvation. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. As Adam and... Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time, or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.